Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are almost constantly in the news today. Whether the Satanic Temple is demanding equal representation in public spaces, deceased veterans' families seek previously unapproved religious iconography on headstones in military cemeteries, or an atheist request to open a city council meeting with a secular invocation in response to specifically religious messages from previous meetings. Demanding equality in alignment with the First Amendment sounds like the easiest thing in the world to do, since it is inherently American to invoke the First Amendment and the freedoms and rights it gives the population of this country. However, demanding equality in the public square for minority religions takes bravery because such messages and requests are often received with a skeptical attitude. A series of cases involving minority religions and the First Amendment captured the interest of Jay Wexler, a professor at the Boston University School of Law. Wexler traveled the country and heard the stories of people who have demanded equality under the First Amendment's Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses and compiled what he heard in a new book called Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and others are demanding their rightful place in public life. The book came out from Redwood and Stanford University Press in the summer of 2019 and is quite fascinating. You can find a link to buy the book in the show notes. You can find Wexler online at jwex, that's W-E-X, dot com, on Twitter at scotushumor. You can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast. Please enjoy this conversation with Jay Wexler from the Boston University School of Law. Jay Wexler, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks so much for having me. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? Uh, well, I'm a law professor at Boston University. I've taught uh, at BU for, I guess, 18 years now. I teach a bunch of different classes. Law and religion uh, is probably the most relevant. Before before that, I, uh, I, I worked for um, Justice uh, Ginsburg for a year and worked at the Department of Justice for a couple of years after that. And I have a master's degree in religious studies. I've always been really interested in religion. I uh, was going to get a PhD in religious studies, but couldn't really handle the language or languages. So I went to law school instead. And But I've still kept my interest in religion, of course. And, and um, that's the thing I like to write about most and talk about most. Excellent. Well, I'm, I am curious how you got into that. Do you have any like early pivotal moments where religion became super, you know, important to you? Like you write a little bit in your new book that we're going to talk about, about your background. Um, but how did you get interested in religion in the first place and paying attention to it? Uh, it's kind of a long story. I guess I grew up 
Jewish, uh, and I went to Hebrew school. I was bar mitzvahed. Uh, I fought it the entire time I was there. <laughs> it was uh, just did not really resonate with me at all. I became uh, an atheist officially in <laughs> in high school. I love to tell the story about how I announced that I was an atheist in my freshman English class in high school, and then later that day broke my collarbone playing dodgeball in gym class <laughs> and was afraid that maybe <laughs> the two things were related. So I kept it on the my atheism on the down low for a while. But uh, but but I've been an out atheist, I guess, since since roughly then. But in college, I started getting interested in, in Asian studies and I was an Asian studies major. And I studied a lot of Chinese philosophy, Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism. And that was really uh, intriguing to me. I really, uh, that's, that stuff, though I'm not a Buddhist or a Taoist, uh, nonetheless is very, uh, very interesting to me. And that's what I was going to study in graduate school. I was going to study basically Taoism uh, and, and Buddhism, Chinese religion. And uh, so, so that's, that's kind of where I got really, really interested and excited about religion, even though I'm not a member of either of those religious traditions. So when I went to law school, I naturally kind of uh, gravitated towards issues about the First Amendment and religion. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm still, uh, I, 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 I worry about a lot about the rights of religious minorities in the, in the United States. And that's related, I think, to being an atheist and to being a Jew and to being interested in, in these Asian religions. So that's kind of a common theme, I think, that goes through everything that I think about when it comes to religion. Excellent. Well, you have this brand new book out from Stanford University Press called Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. So, you know, um, this is such a wonderful book. And whenever I was reading this, a news story popped up in my feed about schools, public schools in South Dakota in one school district putting In God We Trust up in all of their cafeterias. Yeah. And so I am curious if you have followed that story and if you can connect that sort of to the topic of the book that we're going to discuss today, because that is something that isn't in your book and it's happening right now. And I'm curious what your take on that is from your vantage point as a scholar who seeks to uh, you know, present the views and the rights of religious minorities in the United States. Yeah, so I've seen uh, that story pop up, and people have asked me about it. I have not like looked deeply into it, so I don't know all the facts about it. But it's it, from what I know about it, it's infuriating. Um, you know, the idea that that uh, a public school would put up signs to endorse the idea that there's uh, a God and only one God. And that we all are supposed to trust in that God, it's basically uh, ignoring the beliefs of a significant portion of the population who, in fact, do not believe that we should trust in God or that there even is a God, or if there are gods, there's more than one. So, um, you know, the idea that the government has any role to play in telling us what we should believe or how we should believe it is the kind of thing that drives me up the wall. So um, I hope that this is, you know, and, and the other interesting thing about it is there's this kind of belief among a lot of people that if you just talk about God as opposed to Jesus Christ or, uh, or you know, specifically Islam or, or Judaism, that it's therefore it's not sectarian. Mm. Uh, and so therefore it's okay. And that, and that's something that you 
kind of see sometimes in judicial opinions is that notion, um, like the idea that under God in the in the Pledge of Allegiance is okay because it's not about any specific God. You know, ignores the fact that lots of people don't believe in a God at all or believe in more than one God. There was a really fascinating. Um, I'm just uh, just riffing here, but I always like to bring this up. There was in, when when the under God in the Pledge of Allegiance case went to the Supreme Court. There was a brief filed by Buddhist organizations, a consortium of them, consortium of them, and and they argued they in the brief. The whole point of the brief was that we Buddhists do not believe in one God. It was just basically a, an educational, you know, uh, brief, uh, just to teach the Supreme Court that that in fact saying under God is offensive to a large set of the population, and that's how I feel too. Gotcha. Okay, so this new book, um, our non-Christian nation. What was the moment you realized that you had a full book project on your hands? Like, were there any current events that really got your attention and really got some momentum going for you to actually set out and actually write this whole book? Uh, um, well, you know, I had sort of collected in my head a, num- a couple of the stories in the in the book, the the Pentacle uh, story, which maybe we'll be talking about, mm-hmm. about the Wiccans fighting, uh, to get the, the, the Wiccan pentacle on the national cemetery headstones was something that I knew about. And I knew that was, had not been written much about. And I knew about the Summum case, of course. Uh, it, it may have been, you know, seeing the satanic temple. Um, oh, and, and I guess, I guess the idea for the book also kind of coincided with the town of Greece decision. Uh, which is the Supreme Court case uh, from a few years back, which said that it's okay to start for the government to start off its town meetings with a prayer, a sectarian prayer. And uh, when that case was decided, it was it was um, you know, Justice Kennedy and his his opinion made it very clear that the government can't discriminate on the basis of religion when it decides who it's going to have give those invocations. And so, in the wake of that case, there was a push. To have minorities and, and particularly uh, secularists give these invocations, and so I can't remember exactly, but it quite possibly was the reaction to uh, the reaction to that case, plus what the Satanic Temple was doing, and then I put that together with these other stories that I had collected in my head, and I think that's probably when I knew that there was a book to be written about it. Excellent. Well, Greece, New York is just down the road from me in western New York, like just outside of Rochester, isn't it? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's very, very close to me. I live in Buffalo, so it's just down the road. So that was a really fascinating section of the book for me personally because it kind of showed me what's going on in my own region of which I am a transplant to of just now a little over a year. So I love that section. Um, and you did some serious road tripping throughout this book as well. Like You were traveling nonstop. Um, what were some of your research adventures like for writing the book? Well, I, I do. I always like to, to travel if I can, because it's always uh, interesting. You get a whole new perspective on an issue or a case or whatever when you actually visit the place where it came from and talk to the people who were involved. So I went to the town of Greece. Uh, I think that was one of my favorite trips because I, I went to see Linda Stevens, who was one of the plaintiffs in the town of Greece case, sued town of Greece for starting its town board meetings off of the prayer and then she lost in the Supreme Court she gave her own atheist invocation before the same board and I wanted to see that just to you know kind of witness history in a sense so uh, I visited uh, I went to see that it turns out that there was that 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 the town was very respectful of her 
um, and that there were no problems with her giving that invocation. So that was heartening, although, you know, it would have been maybe more exciting for the book if there had been some big protest or something. But uh, mm-hmm. so I went there. I went to Salt Lake City uh, to visit this group that I talk about in the book called the Summum. And a student of mine, a former student of mine who lived in Salt Lake City, and I went and spent a, an evening with the Summum in their pyramid, which I strongly recommend anybody who is interested in minority religions go check out in, in West Salt Lake City. They actually have a pyramid on their property and you can go inside it and they can, they'll can they teach you about their tradition. Uh, I went to North Carolina and I talked to a principal of a, of a Muslim school that receives voucher funds. Uh, I went to Minnesota to see if the if a little town in, in uh, Minnesota called Belle Plaine was really going to put up a satanic monument in its tiny veterans memorial park. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spoiler alert, it did not. <laughs> but uh, so uh, and in uh, other places as well. So so it's a, that's really a, a, a great pleasure of, uh, of having the job that I do and having a bunch having time and some money to go visit places. Uh, it, was, it just really I feel like it, it helps me write about the issues and it definitely helps me teach about them. So it's something that I always do and, and really, really like to do. Do your students at BU Law School, do they appreciate the fact that you're sort of like on the ground type of researcher that you go to the places like do they, does that does that translate across to your students in your classes? I think so. I mean, I certainly hope so. I, uh, you know, I, when, I, I always when I can talk about what, I, what I've seen in, in specific places and I think the reaction is always pretty good. I do it in environmental law, too. I teach environmental law, so. Uh, a couple of years ago, I t- took this course in wetland analysis, and uh, and I talked about that in my environmental law course, and I think that the students really enjoyed that. So, uh, yeah, I think that they like the idea that 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 they've got you know teachers who are not just reading in books and can bring you know some real spice uh, to the to the conversation in class. I I, I think that's what they think. It's possible they think I'm nuts, but I, I hope not. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, something that I think your book does really, really well is you, um, you're writing for a general audience. You know what I mean? Like the tone yeah. and the writing in the book is very accessible to anybody who might be interested in these issues. And you talk about some, I think, somewhat misunderstood or uh, not understood very well concepts in our society, such as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. So as a law professor, I am wondering if we can discuss some terminology very briefly. So simply, what are the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause? So the first uh, sentence of the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so that's the religion clauses. And part of that is about protecting uh, individual rights to free exercise of religion. That's the free exercise clause part. And the other part is prohibiting the government from establishing a religion or making a law respecting an establishment of religion. And that's the establishment clause part. The free exercise clause part basically places some limits on the government's authority to regulate people's religious practices. And the establishment clause places some limits on the government's ability to promote or support religion. So that's kind of separation of church and state part uh, is is typically about the establishment clause, Um, although 
it's it's certainly plausible to read both of the clauses together as being being both part of the separation of church and state uh, idea. So uh, so that's the basic idea. Free exercise protects people's uh, right to practice their religion to some extent, and estab- the Establishment Clause prevents the government from making some kinds of support of, of, of promotion or support or advancement of religion. So it seems to me like a misunderstanding of these two things leads to conflict in our society because it leads to people uh, overstepping and it also leads to people reacting against people whose views they may not share. Does that seem accurate? Uh, yeah, no, I think it does. Um, the, the the confusion is typically between private religious speech versus government-sponsored religious speech. Because the Free Exercise Clause protects people's, and the, by the way, the Free Speech Clause, uh, which is also in the First Amendment, protects individuals' rights uh, to practice their religion, to speak about their religion, to you know put forward their religion as truth as private individuals. The Establishment Clause says, yeah, but the government can't itself do those things. And so um, they can those, th- those things can get confused and people can say, well, how can it be an Establishment Clause violation for there to be prayer in public schools when it's just simply individuals praying, right? Um, the problem with the prayer in schools is that is 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 when the government somehow supports or sponsors the prayer. That's when we get a problem. But people will say, for example, that the Supreme Court has kicked prayer out of school uh, in its school prayer decisions. And in fact, that's not true. The government uh, the the government can't support or promote prayers, but individuals voluntarily can pray. Students can pray before class, after class, you know, to themselves, whatever. And and so those two, th- that can get confusing. Um, and I think it's always important to keep in mind the distinction between private religious speech, which is protected, and government-sponsored religious speech, which is, which is prohibited, or at least limited. Excellent. Well, as I told you earlier, I am a teacher, and I have um, talked to many students in the past who do take up those rights um, at school and pray during school hours, but in private and in separate spaces. And it's never an issue. So anybody who says that there's no prayer in schools is completely wrong. Um, cause I can say that there is from firsthand experience. Right. Um, so as a high school teacher, I'm curious how you think that it's important for me as a teacher and other teachers to help young people graduate from high school understanding clearly what these things are, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Like, what do you think that we should be doing as teachers to help them arrive in college and into adulthood with a better understanding of these concepts for the benefit of our whole nation? <laughs> well, I, I agree. The more the more uh, of this stuff that, that you can teach students, uh, the better. Uh, I don't know if it's on the, the tests. That would be an interesting question um, uh, that I'd be curious to know about. Uh, you, you know, my my wife is a high school teacher also, and so I, I, I you know, watched the sort of tension between what the what teachers think they should be teaching and what they need to be teaching in order that the students pass their whatever mandated tests are. Um, but but regardless, I think yes, you're you're right that students really should learn these kind of basic constitutional principles, not just the religion clauses, but but some of the other important ones too, because otherwise it's really hard to understand 
what's going on in our in our society. I mean, it, if you don't understand what the point of the First Amendment is and and what kinds of things the First Amendment allows and what or protects for, versus what it prohibits, then you really just don't understand the proper role of government in uh, in, in 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 remaining neutral um, among these very the the great religious diversity that we have in the in the United States and. You know, I think also it's important uh, for 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 public schools and private schools to teach about religion, so that students understand. You know, still graduate from high school with some understanding of religion, since religion is such an important central, you know, phenomenon in human life and 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 our society and internationally. So, you know, the more of the stuff that that you and uh, and your fellow teachers can teach the students, the better. I love the fact that earlier in the conversation you said that you've been an atheist for much of your life, yet you also very, very clearly acknowledge the importance of religion in society in helping us understand each other because it's not going away. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and one thing that drives me crazy, you know, I'm in this East Coast uh, liberal bubble, of course, in Boston. And, and the academy, and so you do get, you do see a lot of kind of hostility, skepticism, hostility about religion uh, in, in, in this bubble, uh, which always m- maddens me because, you know, it is such, such, such an important part of life for so many people uh, to just sort of ridicule it or to say it doesn't matter or, 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 or it's silly or whatever. It's just basically writing off 80% of the population or more yeah. uh, of the country and, and trying not to really understand what it is that's important to them. And and that's always struck me as you know bananas. Excellent. Well, I want to talk about the title of this book. So the main title is Our Non-Christian Nation. And we often hear from very specific subsets of the population that the U.S. is a Christian nation going back to the founders, which I personally find to be somewhat ahistorical if you go back and read what they said. So I'm curious if you can remind everyone about some very important events in our history, such as Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments of 1785 and Jefferson's 1802 letter to Danbury Baptist. Sure. Uh, and I, let me pre- pre- uh, preface this by saying, you know, I'm not a historian. Sure. I don't uh, I don't believe also uh, as a constitutional scholar that uh, we ought to really hue to what the framers thought the Constitution meant. I mean, if you look at the religion context, for example, you compare how religiously diverse we are now to what we looked like back in in the 1780s, uh, we don't look anything like that anymore. So there are a lot of reasons why I, I find the history to be not particularly important for understanding current disputes. But uh, you're right, there there is a lot of historical material that shows that, the, that framers are a significant number of the framers thought it was important to separate church and state and the, the Madison uh, Memorial and Remonstrance that you that you mentioned is kind of the central classic uh, statement from that period about the importance of keeping government and religion separate. It was a long uh, kind of uh, essay that Madison wrote uh, opposing a, uh, a, a proposed law in Virginia that would tax citizens to support religious teaching. And Madison kind of sets out 15 different reasons why we ought to be wary of the government getting involved in religion. 
uh, everything from protecting the government to, very importantly, protecting religion, which is something that often gets uh, 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 missed when we're talking about separation of church and state, that uh, Madison very clearly recognized that if the government gets involved in religion, the government starts supporting religion, it actually threatens religion uh, as much as it does the government. And so the point of separation of church and state is for both religion and for government to keep them separate. Um, Jefferson's letter to the, uh, the Danbury Baptist is a little, uh, you know, it's important, it's a little less so. I think he he's the one who coined the term separation of church and state in that letter. Uh, so it was clear. It's clear that that Jefferson thought this was an important concept as well. Although that letter doesn't define uh, separation of church and state, um, or you know exactly what it means, or or neither does it describe in the sense that in the in the same detail that Madison did what the problems are uh, put when you put government and religion together. But 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 those those two documents are certainly evidence that the founders thought it was important to keep church and state at least significantly separate. Okay, so now the Supreme Court did used to take the Establishment Clause uh, and the separation of church and state much more seriously. I think you said in the book that the uh, 1970s, they took it more seriously, right? Yeah, I mean, specifically more seriously in the, in the, in the context of government funding of religion, which okay. is, is so important because... You know, so much of our uh, right now, because of the, uh, several Supreme Court decisions, a, a ton of our tax money goes to religion, uh, and it wasn't, and it's, and it's always sort of been that way. But it used to be uh, that the government uh, was much more limited in its ability to fund religion. The Supreme Court decided these twenty or so cases in the seventies and eighties where they tried to figure out what kinds of government support of religion uh, through funding were okay and which kinds went too far. And in a sense, they the, the decisions come out looking silly because they draw these really fine distinctions that uh, you know people looked at and thought, well, that's just goofy. Like the government can't can't fund kids to go on uh, public school kids to go on field trips, but they can fund public school kid buses to get to the actual school in the morning. And so it was, um, it's hard to, to describe quickly, but there were a series of cases where the Supreme Court really tried to figure out what the right role ought to be in government funding of religion. And then basically in 2000 or so, the year 2000, it said, ah, as long whatever, basically. I mean, not, not exactly, but but it, uh, but but now there's some very clear rules that allow the government, so long as it kind of uh, f follows some formal rules about how to structure its programs, it allows the government to to send billions of dollars to religion. Okay, so the Supreme Court has uh, sort of officially rejected a secular public square. It sounds like. Do you? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Do Do you think it will ever revert back in your lifetime? Well, let's see. I just turned 50. Uh, I'm in my early so no. 50s, so probably not. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, with Kavanaugh um, and Gorsuch, unless unless something, you know, r radical happens, I think we are stuck with a pretty non-separationist Supreme Court for a long while. Okay. So I'm curious, something that was new to me in the book was the importance of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor 
and something that she made up called the endorsement test. Um, can you briefly describe this? Because I feel like it's very relevant here. Yeah, so Justice O'Connor, who I miss more and more every day, by the way, mm. I, even though when she was a justice, you know, I would often dis- disagree with her. But the great thing about Justice O'Connor was that she loved to come up with these tests or sort of legal uh, approaches to questions where sometimes one side would win and sometimes the other side would win. No, so it never really came – her, her, her jurisprudence was very mushy. Mm. Which is what many people didn't like about her, 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 uh, you know, her decisions. But which I think, in the, looking back, actually has a great uh, virtue to it. The endorsement test says that the government, when it puts up like a, a symbol or a display, a monument uh, on public property, cannot send the message that it is endorsing a particular religious belief or that it is endorsing religion over non-religion. And so basically it says to the justices, look at this symbol or display or monument and ask yourself, what would a reasonable person think looking at this thing? Would the reasonable, say, atheist or reasonable uh, member of a minority religion look at the Ten Commandments monument on public property and say, the government is sending a message that I am a second-class citizen Mm. because I do not share those beliefs? And um, I, you know, I really like that test. I've always really liked that test, even though it leads to, to some really bizarre Supreme Court decisions where you have the justices arguing over what the, you know, the meaning of a particular religious monument might be. And so sometimes the, the court would say the thing, the, the monument went too far towards endorsing religion. Other times it would say, it wasn't really endorsing religion, and everybody could always disagree with the details of how the case came out. But I think the approach, because it was kind of a, 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 a um, what do you call it, a, a kind of a compromise position in a sense, um, really did serve to keep the most blatant religious endorsements off of government property. So I don't, did that make sense? Absolutely. Like <laughs> oh, yeah, you read sort of about the weaknesses of the endorsement test in the book. If you could make it stronger today, uh, what what do you think w- should happen? Well, I, I think that there should be kind of a presumption against any kind of religious symbol or display or monument on public property. Um, I, that's where I would start. I would start by saying that, that the, the, that the presumption is you cannot have one of these symbols, and that if the go- it's the government's burden to to demonstrate somehow that it's not really sending a message of endorsement, uh, that I think would would be a tweak to the endorsement test that I would support, because it would you know put a thumb uh, on the side of the uh, of the scale against religious displays or monuments. Great. Okay. So let's move to today. Um, okay. So so all that said. Religion in the U.S. is like always in flux and transition. So I'm curious, like from your vantage point right now as a law professor and a keen observer of religious freedom, do you see the U.S. as a whole getting more or less interested in the idea of religious freedom for all people? Well, that, well that's hard. That's a hard question. I mean, uh, for all people, I don't know if the, the government is really, I mean, I don't really think the United States is moving towards a, recognizing religious freedom for all people. Um, I'm reading this, uh, this, this great book right now about uh, Muslims in America by Asma Uddin. I I've heard of that book. Um, and it's, and it's, a, it's a really great book, although it's hard to read because it's filled with 
uh, stories of uh, people, you know, thinking that that religious freedom should extend to Christians only, or or maybe to everybody but Muslims, uh, and and it's really disheartening. Um, so 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 my answer to this question is kind of colored by by what I'm reading there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't. You, Get the there. There are some people who who do think of, uh, that it's important to protect with the religious freedom of all. I'm, I mean, Justice Alito, who I don't really uh, like, but it's nonetheless um, uh, he, he does believe in in religious freedom for everybody, and he wrote a case about Muslim religious freedom um, and some other things. But I think you know m- most people think uh, I, you know that that. Well, I don't know what most people think, but I get the feeling that there's a real push for religious freedom for certain people, but not others. And so that's not religious freedom at all. What that is is simply uh, um, religious discrimination. So so I think if uh, I guess my answer to your question is I'm not particularly optimistic about uh, the state of religious freedom in the United States at the moment. Yeah, so... You know, being a non-Christian in public these days sounds like it can feel somewhat daunting based on the reading of this book and the um, Osmo book that you just mentioned that my friend, mm-hmm. uh, I think my friend Ben Marcus over at the Religious Freedom Center in Washington, D.C. actually recently did an interview with her for the Religious Studies Project podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've been hearing amazing things about that book. So here's what I'm curious about. Like, so... Y- do you think that non-Christians should like speak up more? Do you think they should demand access to resources created by the erosion of the church and and state separation? Like, what are, what do you think non-Christians should be doing? Yeah, so that's uh, that's in large part the the main point of my book is that we've kind of lost this battle for separation of church and state, at least for the next 20, 30 years. And so what, what are religious minorities supposed to do now? Uh, either we could just kind of give up and say, well, I guess the Supreme court has said that the public square will be Christian and, uh, and just let that be the case or religious minorities. And I'm including atheists and secular secularists here, uh, need to speak up, as as you put it, um, and need to. I mean, I'm not gonna like look down on an atheist who doesn't want to get up in public and you know give an atheist speech or anything. Uh, you know, everybody has their own uh, you know feelings of, of, about how comfortable they are doing that. But but I think I I would urge people to at least consider getting out there and making themselves known and and making their beliefs known if you can. You know, give an invocation before a town board. Uh, try to do that, uh, whether you're an atheist or a Satanist or a Wiccan or whatever. Um, government gives out all this money to voucher schools. Uh, I'd love to see more voucher schools that teach uh, from a from a religious perspective that's not Christian. Um, I would love to see an atheist voucher school. That would be my dream. Although mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to imagine it would have happened, but who knows. Um, uh, you know, symbols and displays. I mean, I think what the Satanic Temple is doing uh, is great uh, when it uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. The government's putting up "In God We Trust" in the in the public schools. Uh, you know, I think, well, then maybe the government should also be you know putting up Satanic things in the public schools. Um, and you know, what's interesting about that is that is that sometimes when the, especially when the Satanists get involved, the result is that the majority 
realizes the problems with opening the public square to religion and ends up shutting down the the the, the, the public square to religion altogether. That there are several examples of that in my book. So. But, but regardless of whether we end up with a more pluralistic public square or one that ends up being secular, I think it's uh, incumbent upon religious minorities and secularists to, you know, get involved, to partake in public life and show, you know, everybody that we are, in fact, a religiously diverse and pluralistic society. You know, a hugely successful uh, thing where I kind of like was cheering somebody on in your book was the story of Sergeant Patrick Stewart who died and his family had to fight for a pentacle to be included on his gravestone. And can you, can you tell me a little bit about that story? Because that is something where a, a change actually has occurred at the VA with long-term um, results. Yeah, I agree. That I love that story too. Um, so the story is about a Wiccan who was uh, killed in Afghanistan. There are a lot of Wiccans in the military, as it turns out. So this wasn't just just about him, but his wife wanted him to be buried in the national cemetery and wanted a Wiccan pentacle on the on the top of his gravestone. Uh, the VA rules at the time said that you could have a religious symbol at the top of the headstone, but it had to be one of 30-something approved symbols that the VA had approved. And uh, among those symbols, there was some diversity, but there were a lot of crosses. There was the Jewish uh, Jewish star. There was even an atheist symbol, but there was no Wiccan pentacle. And and that's what she wanted on the, on the headstone. So she asked the VA and other Wiccans asked the VA if they would approve the Wiccan pentacle. And the VA gave them the runaround. They never quite said, no, you can't have it, but they also never approved it. And this went on for years, and all the while they were approving other religious symbols for the for the pentac- uh, for the uh, for the headstones. And so eventually they got fed up, and they brought a lawsuit. And the lawsuit basically showed that the reason the government wasn't uh, approving of the Wiccan pentacle was because uh, it didn't like witches. Like that was kind of in the record. Um, so you know, litigation can uh, can really expose. Uh, government, uh, you know, wrongdoing. And in this case, it really did. And as soon as it became clear that that's what the government was doing, uh, the government basically settled and said, all right, uh, you win. You can have a Wiccan pentacle on the headstone. And not only that, they said, basically any kind of, any design, any religious symbol or even non-religious symbol in some cases that can fit, you know, and that can be reasonably put on a headstone is okay. And so in the wake of that that case, that settlement, not only was the Wiccan Pentacle approved, and by, and by the way, now there are about eight, at least eight headstones in the National Cemetery with Wic- Wiccan Pentacles on them. Uh, I visited most of them when, uh, when I was researching the book. But you could also have all sorts of other religious symbols that had not been approved prior to the case, including um, the Hammer of Thor, uh, that's one of my favorites. Wow. And uh, and the Druid Awen, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but it looks cool. So so there was, uh, you know, that's a great story, I think, about how the Constitution and litigation, if necessary, uh, can work together to promote religious pluralism. So this is in Arlington, in Arlington, Virginia, right? Yes. Okay, so if somebody were in Washington, D.C. and were going to the cemetery, they can now find eight... Wiccan pentacles on graves in Arlington National Cemetery? 
Uh, at least. There were eight when I was researching the book. I don't know if there are more now. Did you get to go see the grave of Sergeant Patrick Stewart with the pentacle uh-huh. on it? Yep, I cool. sure did. Awesome. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, it was great. Like, it's kind of gives you sh- sort of shivers to look at it. Um, um, and there's this group of Wiccans who I met with um, who each Memorial Day, they go to each of those graves and they do a little, uh, you know, Wiccan ceremony to honor the dead, uh, you know, the fallen Wiccans, which to me is tremendous. You know, and I have I have a quote that jumped out at me in the book when I was reading this section about the Wiccan pentacle, and it's by uh, a woman named Selena Fox. Who is Selena Fox? Selena Fox is a Wiccan priestess, a pagan priestess, who is uh, runs something called the Circle Sanctuary in southern Wisconsin. I visited that. I visited her. It's a beautiful place. Uh, and she is maybe the kind of the most active uh, fighter for Wiccan rights in the United States, uh, pagan rights, and, and also understanding kind of education about paganism and, and Wicca. And uh, so that's what – so she's she's been in these uh, battles for, uh, for recognition of, of, of the rights of pagans and, and Wiccans for her whole career, 30 years or so. Okay, so she has a quote in the book where she says, we are American and we deserve to have our symbol treated the same as other symbols. So I want you to talk to maybe somebody out there who's very devout, maybe somebody who has been raised to be afraid of these types of symbols, and maybe who associates these types of symbols with with possibly the downfall of the United States itself. And they're feeling right. very, very nervous when they consider these ideas, when they consider embracing open-mindedness on these ideas, like they get afraid. So can you speak a little bit to that nervous, skeptical person about the Americanness of off-the-beaten-path spiritual practices and why we should protect them? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is 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 – that person should go meet a Wiccan. Like, um, you know, uh, this has happened in several different areas of of, uh, American social life in the last 10, 15 years. You know, the the, the move to to gay rights and to to recognizing same-sex marriage, a lot of that uh, was because people, you know, realized that they knew people who were in same-sex relationships. And wow, it was fine, you know, or, or people started supporting medical marijuana when they realized that they knew a patient who used medical marijuana and it was fine. And I think that if people, you know, and, and partially this is the responsibility of the religious minorities to get out there, I think the more, you know, a skeptical Christian, for example, actually goes and meets and talks to a Wiccan like Selena Fox, uh, I think it, the more they will understand that there's nothing un-American and, in fact, something very patriotic about uh, what the Wiccans are doing and asking for. You know, so it's it's kind of this otherness, you know, that pe- makes people worried uh, because they don't understand what what the other is doing or what they think or what they feel. And they can kind of pretend like they're these demons or whatever. But if you actually meet one... Uh, and talk to one and try to understand them, uh, I think that would go a long way towards making people kind of understand that there's no, you know, there's no threat here. Uh, the Wiccans are not going to uh, topple the United States of America, and, and, there's, and they're not bringing the devil, uh, you know, into our 
into our cities and towns or anything like that. Same thing with the Satanists. Um, but um, but there was some other another thing that occurred to me when you were talking about that about um, you know religious minorities and 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 U.S. citizenship. I mean we, you know, I mean it, it's not like when we started the United States we we were uh, we were you know kind to all sorts of religious minorities. Um, you know, Quakers were hanged in the Boston Common, et cetera. But we are a country that was founded on the principles of religious freedom, and uh, you know, that's it's worth remembering that we, you know, start the whole country started because of religious discrimination, right? Uh, and that we wanted to escape, um, and so you know, just to sort of point to religious minorities and say that they're not American is sort of ignoring uh, the whole point in some in some fashion of the nation as a whole so selena fox also has a stance on religious symbols in public places and that is this was really great so simple and it's so fantastic and she just said many if any and so whenever i see groups who see something like in god we trust go up in a cafeteria in an elementary school and then they want something else put up next to it it feels like as soon as groups start suing against, uh, it's suing for more representation, that the whole thing gets scrapped, and then things like "In God We Trust" come down, and things like a, uh, you know, like a manger scene in on public space comes down. So it sounds like instead of allowing all the groups to be involved and put up this massive pluralistic and multicultural displays that the one that was originally there just gets taken down instead, which, I mean, I feel like that sends a message that, um, well, since we can't be alone, we don't want anybody else to be involved either. So we're just going to take ours down too. So that we can't have this massive display. Does that seem like a trend? Yeah, it uh, absolutely does, and um, it, particularly when the Satanic Temple gets involved, because that you know there's some people who can who can sort of stomach the atheist, um, uh, you know, there's some Christians who can stomach the atheist display at Christmas time, uh, and there are many atheist displays that go up in, uh, at the in the in the holiday times, you know, and they're controversial, but they don't necessarily uh, cause the majority to freak out. But when the Satanists come to town. Then uh, the Christian majority is really faced with this issue. Um, you know, do they really care about pluralism enough uh, to to have an open public square which includes Satan in addition to Jesus? And usually the answer to that is no. And uh, and so they end up closing the public square entirely or cutting off, you know, stopping a the practice of starting off a, a meeting with a prayer or giving out religious material to students, you know, or something like that. And so so it is kind of ironic that that perhaps the best hope right now for for a secular public square is to demand pluralism and see and see what the majority does. Sometimes they allow it, but oftentimes they just shut the whole thing down. Awesome. Well, and you know, people live very very busy lives. So there might be people out there listening who are Hindu or Jain or Sikh or Muslim or Baha'i who may want to get involved a little more after listening to this conversation. Do you have any like sort of baby steps that you could encourage everybody to take to move the nation towards a more pluralistic uh, nation and uh, 
to help everybody get involved a little more. Are there any easy mm-hmm. steps that people can take? Because it takes a lot of bravery to get involved in these types of issues. Right. Not not everybody's going to be uh, Linda Stevens and you know bring a lawsuit, <laughs> sue your town all the way to the Supreme Court, lose, and then go back and give an invocation before the very people you sued. Um, but uh, you know, I think people can be more public about their beliefs. I think people, you know, there's this feeling among atheists, you know, it's it's it's, it's still there that you know people don't feel don't always feel comfortable identifying as atheists, uh, particularly in places of the country where it's really uh, a huge minority view. Um, and I think to the to the extent that people can take pride in their beliefs, even if they're, and especially because they're minority beliefs, uh, and explain them to people and show that there's nothing really to be afraid of, uh, the more that that people can do, the better, you know, writing letters to the editor um, about stuff like In God We Trust going up on the uh, on the walls and saying, hey, look, I'm a Buddhist. Um, I don't believe in one God and I don't trust him uh, or, or whatever. Um, uh, the more people can speak about their beliefs and speak about how kind of government endorsement of the majority religion affects them uh, as individuals and as citizens, the more uh, I kind of understanding we might gain as a society about the dangers of having religion, you know, supported by government, I suppose. So that's... Letters to the editor, talking to your friends, uh, you know, posting things on social media. You know, those are little steps that, you know, if multiplied by uh, thousands and millions could go some way towards uh, achieving some kind of social peace, maybe. Something that I just got reminded of is earlier you said that you think that people should meet Wiccan priestesses and folks like mm-hmm. that who, who practice things that they're not familiar with. And that was sort of like my... Um, my my approach to teaching religious studies is I would have like 20 or more guest speakers per mm. year come into my classroom and they were always really, really good about saying things like from my perspective and in my tradition, this is what we do. And so they were always really good about, you know, adhering to the line that they couldn't go over. But I loved having um, people from other traditions come in and answer my students' questions. So imagine for a second that you were a guest speaker in my classroom coming in to talk about, you know, the Establishment Clause and the First Amendment and, you know, the religious rights of religious minorities in the United States. What is one thing that you would want every student in my class to walk away uh, remembering and thinking about for years and years to come? <laughs> uh-huh. Yikes, that's hard. Um, what would you encourage them to do, basically? Uh, I guess I would encourage them to have an open mind whenever they're, you know, encounter something that they are immediately afraid of, worried about, uh, or angry about. You know, to um, to take a deep breath, do some research, find out what's really happening. And uh, and delay their kind of initial reaction until they have understood more about whatever it is that they are scared of. You know, so if it's a Satanist, uh, you know, obviously people, lots of people will be like knee jerk reaction. Yikes. Can't be good. 
And maybe after you do some research, you'll have the same you know opinion. But at least take a moment to figure out, you know, for example, what are the tenets of the Satanic Temple, um, and, and then and then make your judgment. Um, so so to take a breath, uh, make a an honest, good faith effort to learn something about what you're afraid of or what you think you hate, uh, and then and then and make your decision. Uh, an informed one, I guess. Excellent. Um, you mentioned in the book that as you went to press, a case was about to be heard by the Supreme Court to hear a case about a 40-foot World War One monument shaped like a cross. And yes. so I'm curious what has happened since the book came out that you wish was in the book but isn't in the book. Uh, yeah, a couple things. So that case did come out, uh, and the Supreme Court held that this 40-foot cross on public property in Maryland was not a violation of the Establishment Clause because while it was kind of a religious symbol, it was, in fact, more a secular symbol of uh, honoring the war dead of World War One. So I would have liked to talk about that because it's further proof that that the relation that this wall between church and state is really really small I think you could kind of hop over it at this point it's so low um, the other thing that's really uh, interesting is that you know I mentioned that there's some that there are cases percolating in the courts about for example whether a town board uh, although they have to allow whatever religion they have they can't discriminate on the basis of religion when they're deciding who will give their invocation uh, before their board they they a couple of towns have said it's a uh, we're not going to allow atheists to come and give invocations like okay we we hear you Supreme Court we have to let whatever religion wants to come in here and give an invocation but we're not going to let atheists do it there have been a, a series of cases about that and one recently in by a very prominent court the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, held that it was okay for the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, to have a rule that said no atheists. Hmm. Um, and that's a really disturbing decision uh, to me. And so, you know, it would have that would have been, for purposes of completeness, something I would have wanted to talk about in the book had it come out, you know, uh, had the case come out earlier or the book come out later. Well, interesting. Um, so this has been a really fantastic conversation i'd encourage i'd encourage anybody to check out this book if this conversation is fascinating because like i said earlier the readability and the accessibility like you do not have to be a law professor um, or somebody in the legal field to get a lot out of this book so i appreciate your your approach to writing because it's a very good-natured and very uh, humorous book. Uh, there's a lot of your fantastic personality that comes out in the writing, and I've really enjoyed reading it. Um, I'm curious what is next for you. What projects are you going to pursue now? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for all those uh, kind words about the book. I do, uh, you know, that is my goal is to try to write something that anybody can understand. Uh, you know, scholars tend to write these ridiculous articles that only 10 or 11 other people in the world can understand and that yes. just really struck me as being a waste um so i uh, thank you for that um th right at the moment um i'm doing something completely different i'm working on a book about marijuana law which is something i also teach 
Um, so I'm writing a book called Weed Rules, uh, which is kind of about marijuana law. I'll at some point get back to religion, I'm sure. Uh, at the moment, though, I'm not writing anything about religion, taking a break from it. So, yeah. so that's where I am at the moment. Nice little recharge. Yeah. Well, uh, Jay Wexler, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I am just so delighted to have you on the show. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this, too. And thanks for having me on. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.